You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Emily Chang in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, President Biden calls Russian President Vladimir Putin a war criminal. This as the atrocities in Ukraine mount. And Ukraine's President Zelensky makes a powerful plea to U.S. Congress and Biden himself for more help. We're going to also take you to the front lines of the other war Russia is waging, a war on information. Plus, I will speak exclusively with Aaron Levy, CEO of Box, after the company's investor day. His thoughts on another kind of war happening here on the home front, and that is the war for talent in a rapidly evolving work world. The idea of work, of course, has changed a lot in the last two years. We're going to break down a top work shifting survey and show you how there's no going back to how it used to be. Tuesday, an employee of Russia's state Channel One television interrupted the main broadcast with a protest against Putin's invasion of Ukraine, saying, don't believe the propaganda. They're lying to you. This protester was later taken into custody, fined, but released and is now awaiting an additional penalty. I want to talk more about all of this with Joan Donovan, the research director at the Harvard Kennedy School Shorenstein Center on Media Politics and Public Policy. And that woman, Joan, was able to release a video of, of some more context why she was speaking out before uh, she ultimately made that appearance on that main news program. But what she did is absolutely incredible and and certainly a major risk she's been released from custody in russia why do you think putin would do that well it's the first major test of this new law that was put into practice um uh, a few uh days ago essentially saying that uh reporting about this quote-unquote special military operation uh, had to use certain words, could not use the word war. And so this um, editor jumping out on screen, she worked at the at the TV station, uh, is, a, is a huge deal. And the fact that she's been let out is, it's strange. It's actually propelling a lot of conspiracy theories online where, uh, you know, people are saying this is managed dissent. Uh, as long as people feel like there's a voice out there advocating against the war, then there's not much that they're going to do about it. Um, but I happen to think that this was an authentic and real 
uh, cry from the media itself that they didn't want to be part of this uh, war. This information blackout, the digital iron curtain coming down in Russia, the blocking of Facebook and Twitter. What does this actually mean for everyday Russian citizens? What kind of information are they actually receiving? How many of them can actually get around the firewalls and access information that is available outside the country? Yeah, it's 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 burdensome, but it's not uh, it, they can deal with it. Um, what's What's happening is essentially that they still have access to uh, television and radio, and so there's a large amount of state media still on the rails. But with the Internet, it's different because the media from outside of Russia has a difficult time uh, penetrating audiences and, and getting in. And so Russians have been, um, according to some recent reporting in Time magazine, for instance, Russians have been creating VPN parties where people get together and learn how to circumvent the ban so that they can access uh, outside uh, content that has been banned by the Russian government. Um, what's even more difficult, though, is because of the way that platform companies have been acting very unevenly, it's hard to tell exactly uh, what kind of content people are seeking out and if they are essentially trying to seek out um, more Russian state media because maybe YouTube was the place that they originally were, were watching it or if they're uh, reaching out and finding more independent news and are able to access uh, information about the war that may sway their opinion. So to that extent, we've obviously seen video of Russians protesting in the streets. What do we know about how the vast majority of Russian citizens feel about the war? Do they support it or are they against it? Well, this is another thing that's complicated by, uh, you know, the, 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 the Iron Curtain, the digital Iron Curtain, if you will. Uh, lots of uh, independent media, particularly even the New York Times, have removed their reporters. And so getting a sense of what's happening in the streets is difficult, uh, absent really deeply searching on social media to find TikTok videos um, and, you know, you're showing footage of people burning their Russian passports that they don't want to be citizens uh, of Russia, knowing what Russia's doing to Ukraine. And so uh, as long as those videos and those uh, the content about the protests is circulating, we can imagine the momentum is going to grow more and more towards this anti-war sentiment as, uh, unfortunately, the death toll rises and the damage that's being done to the to the Russian economy increases. And so that's how I gauge as a sociologist what the temperament of the people are, is how many people are going out in the streets, how many people are getting arrested, and uh, with every twist and turn of the sanctions, how many more people are willing to stand up uh, for their own freedoms as well as to express this anti-war sentiment? How are organizations like yours finding and dis debunking disinformation about the war on Ukraine? And I'd like to take it one step further, which is why does Russia's disinformation campaign matter to a global citizen? Why does it matter to someone who isn't in the country and not necessarily on the direct receiving end? 
of that? Well, the, the why is a big deal for us, which is why we do this work, which is essentially uh, we believe on our team and um, I think being an academic, I believe that humans have a right to access the truth. And I believe that if you were to search on a platform for, you know, did the Holocaust happen, you shouldn't get a bunch of anti-Semitic websites and, and posts. You should actually get content that is going to uh, satiate that that need for information. And so when we go out and look for uh, disinformation, one of the things that we look for is essentially what is a hot button issue that has the potential to be polarized. And then we look on either side of the issue and, and try to assess. First and foremost, we look for is there any what we would call digital shenanigans going on. Are there bar bot networks, questionable engagement, uh, lots of seemingly to be is spammy accounts participating? So that's like the low level, easy stuff to spot. And then as we start to look at very well-crafted propaganda campaigns, especially the ones that come out of Russia, we see them across every platform. They're not on a single platform. They're very well spread out, but they tend to have a kernel of the same messaging. And they sometimes will use a very particular word that it kind of comes out of nowhere. Like, for instance, uh, at the beginning of the war, people had heard the term denazification, and that was right. a very strange word. And so um, we looked into that and saw that there were different propaganda networks trying to make that uh, that idea that Putin was going into Ukraine to denazify Ukraine, um, you know, the different networks that were trying to make that happen and why it was not a very successful one. Another one that we would look at uh, in particular is we're always keeping an eye on things like biolabs or bioweapons because of the way in which those words were contorted dur during um the pandemic, and of course, we're still in it. But uh, sometimes if you pay attention to disinformation long enough, it's in a pattern. And so we often see the same tropes come back again and the same actors come back. Right. And so with the Biolab one, uh, it, over the past few days, we've been hearing that the U.S. and Ukraine have been colluding to build biological weapons together. Of course, that's uh, something that, you know, people have roundly uh, debunked, but at the same time, it becomes a really important source of uh, animosity and confusion, and, and it can lead right. to demoralization, uh, you know, of people that would be in support of ending the war, feeling as if maybe there's there's something worth, um, you know, there's okay. something that Russia might be on to here. And so I think... Uh, the last thing I'll say on this is that, uh, you know, truth needs an advocate. And so Indeed. our work is that that work. Joan, we're grateful for your work to get us to the truth. Thank you for breaking down some of these really complex issues. Joan Donovan, research director at the Harvard Kennedy School, Shorenstein Center. Appreciate your time. Helping students achieve their dreams, that's the ultimate goal of the new fintech company, Moss. By reimagining banking for Gen Z and helping students overcome financial barriers to pursue higher education. This as we come out 
hopefully, of a two-year pandemic that has greatly impacted young people's schooling and their mental health. I want to talk about all of this and more with founder and CEO, Amira Yayoi. Amira, thank you so much for joining us. You have such a fascinating personal story, and I want to start there with what drove you to found your company. You were a leader of the Arab Spring in Tunisia. You fled to Paris. You couldn't get a college degree yourself. And that's what led you to this. Can you talk a little bit about your background and your own experience with social movements? Yeah, absolutely, Emily. Thank you for having me. You know, unfortunately, uh, a year ago, my story was not that common and it's becoming very common now. It's what's happening in Ukraine. Um, every, every global crisis ends up with young people losing their chance to a normal life, and that is also higher education. Uh, millions of people are actually fleeing to Europe. Uh, I was one of those students 10 years ago. Um, the difference is, in my case, there was no, um, I would say, like popular, um, popular interest what was happening in Tunisia. And so I was an illegal immigrant in France. I was not allowed to get a higher education. It is the case of most European countries. As an illegal immigrant, you're not allowed to education. I hope Ukrainian students will have access to it. I, um, that was obviously like the trigger of part of Moss, uh, but the big trigger for Moss is to help everyone uh, get access to opportunity and to dignity. And that through our app that helps students get higher education, get an education, go to college with uh, less loans, we actually help them get free money. Right. Now, you said on Twitter you lost a friend in the war on Ukraine, and, and you also say this isn't the first time you've lost a friend to war, but that this time it feels different. Can you explain why? Yes, it feels different uh, because it feels like it could have been avoided. Um, it is, uh, um, we know how horrible is Putin. Um, I am now worried about friends that I have in Ukraine, but I'm also worried about friends that I have in Russia who will also get crushed uh, by the regime. Um, and um, the thing is that the whole world knew about how horrible is Putin, how far he could go, and we waited. We waited way too much. Um, I was listening to Zelensky, and it, it, feels, it, feels, it feels lonely to be part of the European being proud of Europe, but at the same time left alone. Now, there are three million people who have fled Ukraine. Many of them are young people. How do you think what you've created with Moss could help some of these Absolutely. people? As they and have to start over. They have to start over and, and pursue their dreams elsewhere. They may never get to go home. Absolutely. I mean, uh, they are, um, they will be needing a lot of support to get an education. Um, we, we, we are helping students in the U.S. Uh, I hope the U.S. will join the efforts of uh, locating and uh, welcoming refugees from Ukraine and all the refugees actually in the world. Um, and uh, through that, you know, we do have, we do have students who don't have access to education in the U.S. and be treated as a second category citizens in 
this country, like the DACA students, uh, we do have uh, a, a ton of students who don't come from maybe wealthy background, they, who didn't have access to understanding that education is within reach, who don't have access to that. So with MOSS, our goal is uh, to make the dream of higher education accessible to everyone uh, in the U.S. and hopefully soon outside. All right, well, we'll be following your progress, Moss founder and CEO, Amira Yayoi. Thank you for sharing your story with us. A few other stories we're watching. Amazon has won unconditional approval from the European Union for its plan to buy MGM for $8.45 billion. That deal coming as Amazon faces increasing pressure to acquire more programming in the very competitive streaming market. And retail sales growth in the U.S. slowing last month is suggesting that consumers are pulling back spending in some categories as inflation cuts into buying power. Overall sales rose three-tenths of a percent, but if you factor out gas station, sales actually fell two-tenths of a percent. Coming up, I'll be joined by the CEO of Box, Aaron Levy, an exclusive interview fresh off the company's Investor Day, how he plans to hopes to keep feeding Wall Street expectations and his thoughts on the future of work and the war for talent. That is next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Welcome back to Bloomer Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Box, one of the leading content cloud providers, just finished its annual analyst day. The company estimates double-digit revenue growth by 2025, which may surprise some investors. Other software companies, which were growing quickly during the pandemic, are kind of now struggling to maintain that momentum. Joining me now, the CEO of Box, Aaron Levy. Aaron, good to have you back here on the show. Talk to us about your outlook here. You're outperforming the street's expectations four quarters in a row. What do you attribute this to? Yeah, so thanks, Emily, for having me. Um, overall, there's sort of three big mega trends that uh, that enterprises are dealing with right now. The first is the continued push toward hybrid work. The second is everything is going digital first. 
even as we come back into offices and as the world starts to open up a bit more. And then finally, cybersecurity uh, challenges and compliance risks are uh, at the center of what every organization is facing today. So when you think about those three big mega trends, um, the way that companies work with their content, uh, these are their financial documents, their contracts, their marketing assets, their most important and sensitive intellectual property in their enterprise, um, all of the, the ways that companies work with that content needs to be uh, shifted and changed to be able to support those three big trends of people being able to work and collaborate from anywhere, being able to automate workflows around content, be able to keep it protected and secure. And so we're fortunate because we've been building a platform for now uh, over 15 years to build the leading way that companies can manage and secure and govern their most sensitive and important data in the enterprise. Um, and, uh, and that's what has both, you know, allowed us to deliver four quarters of accelerating revenue growth last year. Uh, and we believe, um, you know, many, many years uh, to come as, uh, as we put our new three-year guidance um, or target model uh, just uh, this afternoon. You fought off a pretty bitter proxy battle at the height of the pandemic, and I'm curious what impact that's had on you. Has it influenced strategy and how you map out and predict future growth? Yeah, so, uh, you know, at the start of our, our uh, kind of activist journey, um, we, uh, uh, you know, partnered uh, with, uh, with uh, you know, our investors, uh, generally and uh, and laid out more um, uh, aggressive both top line and bottom line targets uh, to uh, uh, to really drive the, the future of the company and I'm really proud of how the team and the company delivered on those targets in the past couple of years especially last year I think going forward you're gonna see us take a very um, uh, you know I think um, you know strategic look at how we drive growth in the future you're gonna see our multi-product strategy and our content cloud portfolio really driving our growth rates in the future. At the same time, we think profit um, and driving increased profitability is going to be important. It has allowed us uh, to build a much more durable financial model that certainly in this market is, um, I think, holding up very well. And that will continue to be the case over the next few years and beyond. Now, we've been talking a lot about the war for talent. You and I spoke at almost the beginning of the pandemic, and you acknowledge it's going to be hard to get people to come back to the office at all, especially engineers. And I'm curious what you're seeing. I know you're just starting to reopen your offices across the country. Do people want to come back? Are they actually coming back? And how is the working world going to forever be changed by what we have experienced? Yeah, no, the, the world is fully changed. Uh, there is no going back to kind of pre-2020 ways of working. That being said, uh, there's a lot of demand both within, you know, Box and, and certainly, you know, peer companies that we talk to for uh, for those that, that live near offices to come back in uh, occasionally um, uh, or more frequently, depending on the individual, um, as a means of being able to see colleagues in person and be able to kind of catch up and, and do some of their uh, some of their work in person, whether it's, a, you know, brainstorm or in a conference room uh, or even, you know, being able to continue to work, um, you know, in their, uh, in, in their you, know, um, uh, you know, traditional environment. Uh, that being said, we know that that uh, hybrid work is the future. So things are not going to look like they were, you know, two years ago, where everybody kind of came into the office every, you know, you know, day, uh, five days a week. At the same time, I think things will be uh, not as remote only as they have been in the past two years. And so the future is hybrid. Uh, and at the center of enabling a hybrid strategy is cloud technology and and being digital first in how you operate. And so for us, uh, that's going to mean that more of our meetings continue to be fully virtual. Uh, that's going to mean that we continue to stitch together the work that we're doing globally um, using uh, the cloud, whether you're coming into an office or working remotely. And I think that's going to be the case for most companies going forward. And, and, and certainly as a platform provider, 
provider, uh, we think that's going to create a huge opportunity for us to innovate for customers in this uh, in this new hybrid workplace where uh, you want to be able to share and collaborate on your most important digital information, whether you're doing that from home or doing that in an office. Um, and that's obviously the, the platform that we're building out. Now, the question is how hybrid is the work world going to be? San Francisco, for example, some people say it's a ghost town. I saw a raccoon walking down the sidewalk in the middle of San Francisco in the middle of the day. True story. To, like, to be fair, I, you... I, I, saw that ra- I, I saw that raccoon before the pandemic. <laughs> okay. uh, but does San Francisco recover? Does it, does, do, we, do we get back to the vibrant city filled with tech workers that it was before? Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I live in the peninsula, so I can't, um, you know, I'm not the best proxy for the latest goings uh, in San Francisco. I was there uh, last week and I, at least outdoors, um, it, to me, it felt pretty similar to, uh, uh, you know, to how things have looked in the past few years, even before the pandemic. It was, you know, a lot of a uh, lot of bustling around the uh, around the city. But that being said, office buildings are clearly not at capacity. Um, people are not coming back into the office every single day. Um, and that does have a, you know, probably an impact at, at, at some point on the uh, on the feel of the city. Um, you know, so I, I can't uh, uh, I can't predict what SF specifically is going to look like. What I do know uh, is the future is hybrid. Um, different companies, different cultures, different teams and different individuals will likely land on on a different cadence or rhythm uh, as to how often they want to come back into an office or be fully remote. Um, and so I think uh, we're going to all have to get used to um, not thinking of this as sort of a, uh, you know, a, a binary outcome of you're either fully remote or you're fully in person, but instead uh, one where, you know, things are going to be hybrid and companies are going to exist on a continuum um, around how much of their work is uh, is done, you know, remotely or fully digitally and how much is done in person. But no matter what, um, ultimately, you're going to need to be able to stitch that work together using the cloud. Um, and that is a, a guarantee for the future. How concerned are you, Aaron, about the macroeconomic outlook right now, given a war happening on the other side of the world, but impacting everyone in the world? Yeah, I mean, we're a, we're an interconnected you know society and economy, and um, and obviously the 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 uh, um, you know the invasion of Ukraine is uh, is an uh, you know a huge tragedy, obviously on on a, on a human. Uh, you know, kind of life and impact level. Um, it obviously does ripple, uh, you know, economically throughout the world, um, you know, to varying degrees, probably based on the industry that you're in. Um, and I'd say it's probably too soon to, to sort of try and model or predict anything about what that looks like. Um, but uh, right now our focus is, you know, anybody um, at Box uh, with Ukrainian relatives or uh, that's impacted directly by this, just making sure that they're in a good spot. Um, uh, to the extent possible, and um, uh, and that, that's sort of our focus. But um, you know, I think it's it's premature to sort of try and try and model too much of the long-term economic impact of this. Okay, Aaron Levy, thanks for joining us today on your Analyst Day. Always appreciate having you on the thanks, show, Emily. CEO of Box. Bye. Now. Taken on Amazon. That is the focus of Instacart CEO Fiji Simo as the grocery delivery embarks on a massive transformation that she wants to drive. Simo spoke exclusively with me for our latest edition of Bloomberg Studio 1.0. Take a listen. We want to help our grocers have all of the technologies they need in order to compete with Amazon. To your point, Amazon is investing very heavily in grocery, and they have a ton of technological abilities. And that was a big part of why, in my first week in the job, I decided to acquire Caper, uh, and, and which is a smart card technology, because I want all of the grocers we work with to have the same uh, edge that Amazon has. And so I see, I see it as my responsibility to build all of the technology 
challenges that they need to compete with Amazon so that we can be the antidote uh, for, for them. Then there's Uber and DoorDash and GoPuff and go outside the United States and the list goes on. How does Instacart stand out from all of these different players that are competing for a piece of that pie? These players fundamentally compete with our grocers. They want to uh, attack the market by being first party retailer, owning their own inventory. And so uh, that's not our approach at all. Our approach is really building technology and fulfillment to help our grocers. The second thing is that these players are very focused on one particular uh, piece of the market, which is quick commerce. And while that's really important, and we've certainly seen our own convenience business double in the last six months, we actually address all of the needs that consumers have. We're not just quick commerce, we're also the weekly shop, we're also your monthly bulk stock up, and that's what retailers want. Now, inevitably, after I interview you or Dara Khosrowshahi at Uber or Tony Shu at DoorDash, I will get feedback on social media from shoppers and drivers who are not happy. Um, one Instacart shopper posted a picture of an order, showed they delivered 51 items, got paid $7.95 and no tip. Is that representative? No, that's very much not representative. And, and I think, you know, fundamentally, shoppers care about their earnings. They really want uh, flexible earnings whenever they want to. And so our job is to make sure that they have more access to work. So what is representative? What is a normal wage for a delivery like that? We're very much in line uh, with kind of industry average uh, for these kinds of jobs. And so that's something that we always try to kind of nudge the consumer of like, hey, your shopper did a really good job. Can, can you tip a little more? Uh, we what if they don't, though, right? I mean, that's you're leaving it up to the customer. We actually... And some customers think, well, you should build this into your price. Well, we actually do, and and we make it very transparent to the shopper before they accept an order uh, what the order is going to look like, how much we're going to pay them, and how much like the, the consumer is paying them. And so they can decide whether they take an order or whether they refuse it. And that's the kind of flexibility that our shoppers really value and the kind of transparency that they want. Are you seeing a labor shortage right now? And what are you doing to, to combat that? It's different in different places. Or demographic of shoppers is completely different from food delivery and uh, ride sharing, where 70% women and half of them are moms. And that's because a lot of the job at Instacart is very different than just being in a car with strangers. It's about like going to the store, doing a good job of customer service, of really picking the right pro products for the consumer. And we are seeing that being very appealing to women. The instant delivery space or you know, 15 minute delivery space, is that something that you want to double down on? It's something that we absolutely want to offer because, again, we really think that our customers want the full range of options. 15-minute delivery is not going to be relevant for everything. I mean, it's going to be very relevant on Thursday night when I'm craving chocolate ice cream, and I, it's really an emergency when that happens. <laughs> exactly. so like, chocolate chip cookie dough for me. You've made some strategic acquisitions, as you've mentioned. What about in the rapid delivery space? Joker, Gorilla? No, we haven't, and the main reason is because... Uh, all of these players are doing uh, very much first-party uh, groceries, so that means they own inventory, uh, and so it's not it's not something that's interesting to us because our approach is really build the infrastructure so that our grocers can do 30-minute uh, delivery or 15-minute delivery, whereas uh, these players are doing it kind of on their own, bypassing the grocers. Do you think retailers trust you? Do they trust Instacart? 
So you know, when I when I took on the job, I was surprised by the strength of our retailer relationships. But there was always this kind of lingering question that retailers had for me, which was, you know. What are your long-term intentions? Are you planning on becoming a retailer at some point? And I had to kind of address that head-on and explain to them in great detail why it would make no sense for us uh, to really go in that direction and why we were going to be able to build a much bigger company if we just focused on what we're good at. You can catch more of my exclusive conversation with Instacart CEO Fiji Simo where we talk about the impact of inflation on food prices, her move from Meta and working with Mark Zuckerberg, and her journey from a small fishing town in France to becoming the head of Instacart. All that on the latest episode of Studio 1.0. Coming up. Is the NFT fad losing steam? How NFT sales have fallen? And what it means for those making a living off them? Next. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. NFT sales had a breakthrough year in 2021 with volume hitting $23 billion in the last 12 months. But sales are now plunging amid the ongoing sell-off in cryptocurrencies. I want to dig into this with our crypto contributor for our crypto report, Shanali Basak. So there's a lot of people trying to make money, earnings off the NFT industry. Shanali, what does this mean for them? Yeah, there's a few things here, Emily. First, we have to look at just how much the trading has dropped off. And if you take a look at this chart here, there was this humongous boom, according to data from NFT Go, and then a significant drop off this year. In January, according to nonfungible.com, NFT weekly sales peaked at nearly a billion dollars and now the past week that is less than 70 million dollars so less than one-tenth of the weekly sales we've been seeing in January you asked what it means for people who are getting paid in this market so if you're somebody who had moved over this story that we had written about Spotify a musician's earnings going from $300 to $60,000 remember the price of Ethereum from a year ago has also declined significantly in addition to sales just dropping off. Uh, it has recovered a little bit this year. And if you look by market cap, it has really held up quite a bit as far as the market goes. But remember, this market still is dominated by a lot of whales, uh, really 10% of the buyers accounting for 90% of the market here. So 
Why are NFTs dropping off? I mean, does it have anything to do with the macro environment? Yeah, that's a really interesting question because, of course, we've seen the volatility in so many of the cryptocurrencies that we track. But if you look at it, um, I'm going to steal a little bit here from investor Lee Drogan because he points out what we were just showing, that idea that traders, trading volumes have really fallen off. And what he says is that until the volume and retail investors come back, prices are not going to go up as well. One thing he points to is ApeCoin and a market that can potentially hold up prices for a few days, whether that'll really start to bring people back, Emily. All right, Shanali Basik, thank you for that update. We're going to keep following on that one. Appreciate it. As more and more companies bring employees back to the office, many are saying... I don't think so. A brand new survey by Microsoft, its Work Trend Index, finds that even more employees are considering quitting their jobs this year than last, and that more than half of younger workers are contemplating a job change. For more on this and the future of work, Jared Pataro. Spataro is here, Microsoft's vice president for modern work. Jared, thank you so much for joining us. So why do you think the great resignation is, in fact, accelerating rather than slowing down? Well, you know, the survey data tells us that we're just not the same people who went home to work in March of 2020. What's happened over the course of the last two years is that people have changed in really significant ways. And one of those ways is how they think about work. Flexibility has become something that's so important to them that they're telling us that they are willing to give up other things, including move to a new job in order to get it. What's the biggest mistake companies are make right, making right now as they try to get workers to come back? Well, the thing that jumped out to me in the survey data, when we asked leaders what they were planning to do in this return to office, over 50% of them told us that they were going to have their employees come back full-time, five days a week, no flexibility. And that contrasts with over 70% of workers who say that flexibility is something that they treasure, that they want to make sure is the part uh, that they keep coming out of the pandemic. So we, we see some tension being set up here that's going to need to be worked out over the coming weeks and months. How do they work that out? I, I see you talk about managers being wedged between the boss and their own teams. That's right. Yeah, we do think that managers are going to be the key here. You know, the thing that we're finding as we go and combine all the data points from the research and get down and do kind of what we call qualitative work is that the, the most practical thing you can do is encourage your managers to be working with their employees and talking through what we call individual and team agreements. In other words, hey, how's flexibility going to play out for you? What does it mean? And can we find a win-win here? Here at Microsoft, we've done that recently. We found that over 95% of the people who had those conversations said that they were able to reach an agreement that really worked very well for them. So we've got some data that indicates that this can be done. You just have to make sure you take the time to do it. How's the return to work going at Microsoft so far? Well, we are in the process of doing that. We've declared here in the Puget Sound, the Seattle area, that we'll be heading back to our final stage of flexible work, what we call this uh, flexibility stage, in, on March 28th. So this month is a big month for us. Um, many of our managers, though, have already had those conversations, and we feel like you know we're set up. We're going to learn just like everybody else, though. There's a lot to learn here. It's a very dynamic time. Now, there's a big question about the future of emerging technologies in the workplace. A lot of talk about the metaverse. Obviously, Mark Zuckerberg Meta has one vision. Microsoft is working on products to take companies to the metaverse. Do employees want to work in the metaverse? 
Well, we asked them that. It's kind of interesting. When we asked employees about the metaverse, 13% of employees said they didn't even know what the metaverse was, but 52% said that they were open to this idea of using digital immersive spaces in the metaverse for meetings and team activities in the next year. So we've got this sense that there still is a lot to be figured out in the metaverse, but let's say just a little over half of people are pretty open to being able to use the technology. So as we look over the next year, what do you think the biggest pain points are going to be? Because, you know, I talk to a lot of people. They don't want to go back or they're reevaluating. Well, again, I think it comes back to this idea of, of employee expectations and comparing those to employer expectations. I think that's going to be where we find the friction. If I just give you a sense of how people but are But who's going to have to compromise, the employees or the employers? You know, it depends on the market, and today it's an employee's market, we would say. And so I think that employers are going to learn a lot here um, as, employee, as employees kind of talk about how important flexibility is. And, you know, you cited a stat earlier. It's 52% of Gen Zs and millennials say that they're willing to move over the next year if they don't get the flexibility they need. So I think that gives you a sense, at least, for where the employees are in their minds. All right. Check it out, Microsoft's latest work trends report. Fascinating stuff that you uncovered, Jared Spataro of Microsoft. Thanks for joining us. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Join us tomorrow. We're going to be speaking with Jennifer Tejada, CEO of PagerDuty, along with Kirsten Green, founder of Forerunner Ventures, about where she's placing her biggest bets in this market. Plus, re-listen to today's show on our new Bloomberg Technology podcast. Yes, the show is now a podcast. You can find it on the terminal, online, Apple, Spotify, iHeart. I've listened to it myself, and it's not bad, um, so I hope you'll check it out. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg.